And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Acts, chapter 16. Last week, we spent some time looking at the Great Commission, which is God's mandate for the church. We said that the recipients of the Great Commission are are the apostles who received it from the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also realized last week that the, the fulfillment of that commission would involve every believer of Jesus. That all of us bear a responsibility by the grace of God to fulfill the great commission that Jesus gave. We said that the target of the great commission was all nations to where the 11 apostles could not possibly go So there's a sense in which we're in view in this picture of fulfilling the Great Commission. Then we talked about the duration of the Great Commission. That is to the end of the age. The goal of the Great Commission, I believe very clearly, is this. It is the establishment of local churches of baptized believers who learn and multiply. Okay, The goal of our going into the world. The goal of taking the gospel of Jesus out is to establish the body of Christ in local units of baptized believers who learn the word of God, live it, and multiply as a result. That is the task that God has given to every Christian. This morning, I want to look at a passage of scripture that is a case study in the expansion of the church. It's early on. It's Paul's second missionary journey that began... Back in chapter 15, verse 36. As we pick up his journey in verse 6, we find a fascinating story about three individuals who live in a place called Philippi, which is the next kind of edge of the frontier of church planning that the Apostle Paul is to work in. I want us to begin reading in verse 6 of Acts 16. The Bible says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went on to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia. That is Europe in our terminology today. He is standing and begging him, come to Macedonia. And help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day, on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord Jesus, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, 
we were met by a slave girl. This is person number two now. Who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled deep in his heart that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison door open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all the others in his house. A fascinating captivating story about the advance of the early church. It's a story that talks about three individuals that come from very different places in their lives. As we examine this text this morning, what I would like us to ask ourselves is this. How does God grow His church? And when I say grow, how does He advance the Great Commission around the globe on which He has called us to live. A globe inhabited by humanity in need of a wonderful and glorious Savior. The Savior, when He left, gave us a command, take my word, the gospel, into all nations. Those that believe, baptize them, identify them with the body of Christ, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded unto the end of the age. Folks, here's the simple truth this morning. We, the chapel at Warren Valley, as a local body of Christ, exist Because somebody fulfilled the Great Commission. Someone brought the Word of God into your life and drew you to the Savior. This morning, I would like us just to look at this text, see it as a case study in how God is advancing His work in the world. And what I would like you to do is this. Ask yourself, am I participating with God in these sorts of ways? 
Do I have expectations and faith to believe that as I step forward into my world on a daily basis, that God is going to use my life to advance His kingdom and allow me as a follower of Jesus to have a part in this glorious work of taking the good news of Jesus to the world around us? I want us to begin this discussion by reviewing what we read in verses 6 through 10. It's the story of Paul and Silas and, and Luke beginning their missionary journey. As they go out, you find, however, that they experience resistance or a lack of ability to proclaim the good news of Jesus. Twice in verses 6 through 9, you find them attempting to go into an area to proclaim the gospel, but they are permitted by the Spirit of God or by the Lord Jesus Himself. Now, we don't know if the lack of permission is audible, if it's circumstantial. We don't have that written for us in the text. But what we do know is this. Paul and Silas and Luke have set out on a journey with a, a pre-decided plan. The plan was, if you go back into chapter 15, to go out and to encourage the churches that God had already led them to plant. God intervenes in their desire and begins to redirect them. They want to go one place. He stands in front and says, not here. They decide to go to another place. He stands in front and says, no. And then in verse 9, you find that the story of the vision that the Apostle Paul has, a vision that God uses supernaturally to advance his work. And in the vision, what does the Apostle Paul see? He sees a man from Macedonia. That's the region of Europe. Okay, Rome. And the first city that he would encounter as he moved into that territory was the lead city of Philippi, a Roman colony, a proud city with glorious power and heritage. Paul sees the vision, the man from Macedonia is saying, come over here and share with us the good news. So it's a fascinating set of circumstances, but I think the first principle that emerges out of this text is this. The work of God advances through those who follow his direction or are sensitive to his direction. Folks, ask yourself this question. As you get up in the morning and prepare your heart to go out into the day before you, do you ask God to lead, to guide, and direct? Okay, now let me say this up front. I am not telling you right here that I do this every day. Okay, please understand. But I believe this with all my heart. If we would go to God on a daily basis and seek His providential direction by His Spirit, that we would find ourselves more actively advancing His kingdom as we respond to the direction of the Spirit. I think that's abundantly clear. And once the Spirit of God makes His will clear, in Paul's case, through a vision, what happens? Immediately, Paul and Silas and Luke head to that new region. Okay, so the kingdom of God, the work of the Great Commission, advances through those who are sensitive to the leading and willing to follow the direction that God gives. Now, in that process of listening, what are you going to find? You're going to find that you struggle at various doors. Some doors that you want to open, don't open. And God begins to move and direct you into another path. That struggling with open and closed doors is a healthy aspect of the Christian life. It is there that we lean into God and depend on God and beg for His direction. And He begins to work and then through our circumstances to accomplish His glorious purpose of taking the gospel out to the world. 
Here's the other thing that I think is fascinating. As I read through this, when Paul and Silas come to a closed door, you know what they do? Or I should say what they don't do? They don't just stand there and become inactive. You know what they do? They just redirect and redirect. And finally, what does God do? God opens up a clear place where he wants them to focus their attention. I think of it like this. God is waiting for you and I to step out in faith. And as we step out in faith, he will begin to close doors and open doors. But what he is directing is the momentum of obedience. Paul and Silas and Luke were committed to the advancement of the gospel at virtually any cost. And as they threw themselves out there and began to trust God to use them to advance his kingdom, God began to direct their steps. Now, verse 11, they come under the direction of the Spirit of God to an area, uh, you're going to see, they go to Troas first, then Samothrace, then Neapolis. From there, they travel to Philippi, the lead city of a region called Macedonia. It's Macedonia is an area that has many cities in it. God has led them to a strategic location where he wants them to plant a church. And that church then will seek to reach out to the rest of its community for the glory of God. That is how God works. So he leads them to a gateway city of great influence in the Roman Empire. Now, here's what I think is fascinating. They come there and stayed there for several days. Verse 12, right? So they get there and what happens? Nothing. They get there and they're sitting there waiting for what's going to happen next. Okay, so it's not a big flashy beginning. They get there because God directed them to be there. They're there for a set of days. Nothing is happening. And then God directs them out to a place by the river, which is called a place of prayer in verse 13. It says, On the Sabbath we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. A gathering of Jewish believers or of Greek or Gentiles who had become followers of Jehovah God at some level. Okay, the typical situation was this. If you had 10 adult men in a city, you could establish a Jewish synagogue. If you didn't have 10 adult men, you would establish a place for prayer, typically by the ocean or by a lake or by a river. Okay, it's a place where they, those believers in Jehovah would gather and seek after the face of God. That's the situation that we find here. Here's what I think is fascinating. We always think of the Apostle Paul as having an enormous splash and impact. Okay, notice the humility of Paul. He doesn't go into the city and seek an enormous audience because, hey, the Apostle Paul is here. He is willing to go out to a humble place to fulfill the commission of God. And so he goes out to this place of prayer. There, the text tells us that he meets a group of women. And this is fascinating in the first century context. Because if you wanted to make a difference in a community, if you wanted to start something powerful, powerful in a community, the last place you would go is to a gathering of women in the ancient world. Okay, it's just the way that it was. The mindset of the Pharisees said something like this. I am thankful that I was not born a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. Okay, that was the mindset of the religious elite in Paul's day. What you see here is that Paul has experienced a massive change of heart as a result of his conversion. And he is willing to use any means possible to advance the kingdom of God 
even when that means is unconventional or unacceptable in the culture. His concern is to advance the cause of Christ. Verse 13, second half says this. It says they began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia. She's a businesswoman, a dealer in purple cloth, which was highly valued, some estimates to the, in, in, in terms of weight to the value of gold in the ancient world. She is from a place called Thyatira, which was a kind of a, a base where this purple cloth was developed and then brought forth. The other thing you find is this. She is a worshiper of God. Okay, so at some level, she's coming out to this place of prayer to seek after to know the Lord. And I wonder, I wonder how refreshing that was to Paul when he got to the place of prayer that he found people who really wanted to know about God. And as Paul began to bring forth the word of truth, what happens? This woman and obviously a number of others there begin to listen to the word of God. I want you to notice what happens second half of verse 13. It says, he began to speak the word to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening is Lydia. End of verse 14, I'm sorry. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And folks, that's like the bingo moment, right? The aha moment when it's just like, there is what God directed us here for. To proclaim the truth to a listening ear as the Spirit of God begins to work in that heart, regeneration takes place and this woman becomes a believer. The first convert in this glorious beachhead Roman city is a woman. Now, here's the thought that I think emerges here. God's work advances often through unlikely or unconventional means. You see, in the ancient world, to start something, you wouldn't go this direction. But God is always doing this. God is always putting a surprise in the story, isn't he? God's always taking human thought and, and human preconceived ideas and notions, uh, what is comfortable. He's often taking that out of the way and inserting something spectacular and surprising so that the glory and honor will go to him. In this case, he finds a businesswoman named Lydia. She hears the gospel. God works in her heart. And here's the way that Paul would say it later. He said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the increase. All of a sudden, Lydia's heart opens to the good news of the message of Jesus and the trajectory of her life begins to change in a dramatic way. The surprise in this story is that God is going to reach into Europe through a converted businesswoman. And I want to say this this morning, if you have the notion that God sees women as second-class citizens, this text should shake you off of that thought. Studying the life of Jesus should shake you off of that thought. Studying the life of the Apostle Paul. Go read the book of Romans chapter 16. And what he does over and over and over again, he attributes effective ministry and service to women in the context of church life. He highly valued what the world failed to value. And so does God. I want you to listen to this text from Philippians chapter 1. If you want to flip there, you're welcome to do that. Philippians 1, verse 3. 
the Apostle Paul is now writing a letter to this church. Okay, to the church in Philippi that began through the conversion of a businesswoman. Here's what Paul says. He says, I thank God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel, and this is what I think what is key, from the first day until now. Okay, who did the partnership in the gospel begin with in Philippi? You know who it began with? It began with a willing woman who was the surprise in the story. A woman through whom God would take His word into the city of Philippi. So she is the first person as this church begins to be established. God flips the tables upside down, uses the opposite of what most people would choose, and uses a phenomenal, committed, converted woman to make an enormous difference. Now I think here's what's fascinating in this text in Acts 16. God uses willing people. He doesn't care about their gender. He doesn't care about their social status. He doesn't care about all their experiences. He is looking for willing people. So the challenge I give you this morning is this. If you look at what God is doing in His church and you say, I want to be a more significant or substantial part of what God is doing, please understand this. All of the strikes that you think you have against you, God erases them by the blood of Christ. And all of the weaknesses that you have, God overcomes by the power of the name of Christ. He seeks to deploy you into your world to make a difference. The question that you and I have to wrestle with is this. Am I willing to respond to the direction of the Spirit of God and to be used, even though I may be an unlikely candidate for use in the hand of God, to influence people for the kingdom of God? Notice in verse 15, after Lydia hears the gospel, what happens? She and the members of her household are baptized. She invited us into her home and said, if you consider me to be a true believer in Jesus, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And here's this, the, the birth of this first house church in a city called Philippi. Through an unlikely choice, God is raising up his witness in that community. And I wonder how Paul and Silas and Luke responded to this going home from that encounter with this woman, and then ending up staying at her house where they would be cared for and provided for as they sought to advance the work of God. And there, Luke 10, this man of peace, this person of God that God had in place ahead of time, has already come to faith in Jesus and is now supporting the work of God, even though she is an unlikely choice. And ladies, I want to say to you this morning, most pastors will at times sit down and talk about the disparity between the commitment of men in the church to the cause of Christ and the commitment level of women in the church. I don't know of a healthy church in America that is not filled with committed and devoted women. So for every one of you that faithfully seeks to encourage your church, your husband, your children, your role before God is significant and substantial. This woman went and obviously evangelized her own household. And when her baptism takes place, guess what? She's not alone. Why? She believed that she had an obligation before God to take the message of Jesus that she received from Paul and to take it to the rest of her family. And you find this sense of a, of a household conversion that begins to take place 
for the glory of God. Trust God. Our response to God's using unconventional means should be one of simple surrender, which simply means this. God does not need amazing people. You know what God needs? God needs willing people. He doesn't need people that are astonishingly gifted, that are likely choices. No, you know what he needs? He needs a woman. He needs a man. He needs a teenager. He needs a child who is willing to say, God, use me. Because what you'll find as you read through Scripture is this. Most of the people that God chooses tend to say to God, why me? (laughs) What do you see in me? Okay? You know what God sees in you? He sees a sinner in need of a Savior that once filled with the Spirit will be a mighty tool in advancing the cause of His kingdom. And Lydia is this unconventional choice that God uses to bring great transformation into the life of the church. If you say or think that God needs highly gifted, highly educated, and highly talented people, you are probably looking for an excuse. Okay, now, let me clarify that by saying this. God uses highly talented and gifted people. I'm not one of them. Okay? But He uses them. But He does not, please understand, He doesn't need them. He can take a businesswoman and use her to change her city. When she responds to the gospel and embraces the call of God. So, if you look at yourself and you say, I am an unlikely choice for God to reach out into my community. What you need to do is put aside your excuses, trust in the infilling of the Spirit of God, trust in the guiding work of the Spirit of God, and commit yourself and yield yourself to Him and say, God, I want you to begin to use my life. And just say to God, God, my reluctance, based on my being very common, really is nothing short of an excuse. It certainly at least underestimates what God can do through a committed life. Folks, listen. Look at the list of the apostles that Jesus chose. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, God has not chosen many mighty and noble. Why? He doesn't need them. He needs willing, devoted, committed people who will seek His face and live a life of surrender and sensitivity to the direction of the Spirit of God. That's what He seeks to use. You know what that means? That means, God, if if we as a church would get past our excuses and start to say, how could God use me if I yielded to Him? You will be amazed. This woman, Lydia, was a seeker. She believed in God, but did not know His Son, Jesus Christ, and was not yet converted. God met her at the river. And changed her life. And she would never be the same. Folks, if you know Jesus, He sought you in your time of need. He opened your heart to the good news of Jesus and changed your eternal destiny. Your life is different forever. He loves you that much. Kill your excuses, okay? Put them to death and say, I want to see what God can do through my life if I yield fully to the work of His Spirit. And I think God, through our church, would begin to do amazing things. Verses 16 through 18. In the city of Philippi, they record this event. Once they were going to the place of prayer. On the way, they met a slave girl who's possessed by a spirit, a spirit that has the capacity for fortune-telling. Okay, a demonic possession that led to 
supernatural or extra normal or paranormal activity in her life. She was a slave girl. She was owned by a group of men that exploited her gifts for personal benefit. Almost just on the complete opposite of the scale of Lydia. Lydia, a businesswoman, probably somewhat wealthy. This girl, a slave girl who lived in abject poverty and simply served to fill the pockets of others. As Paul and Silas are going through the city, she makes a proclamation. She makes a proclamation about their ministry. These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Same thing happens in the ministry of Jesus, doesn't it? This idea of outing His authority, of outing His power, and Jesus rebukes them and silences them. He will not receive, okay, from the ungodly forms of alliance or support. And that's the idea. Uh, The important issue in this text is that Paul is grieved by the attempt of the evil one to make an alliance with his work. Why? Because Christians are fundamentally people of truth. The message that we proclaim is that salvation is found through and in the name of Jesus. And in this story, you find an interesting issue or a situation. You find the Apostle Paul turning to this girl as he becomes troubled in spirit he turns around and says to the spirit in the name of Jesus Christ I command you to come out of her and at that very moment the spirit left her okay so this is an amazing story a girl that is imprisoned in a pathetic situation with no options used not valued encounters a follower of Jesus who calls on the authority of the name of Jesus to deliver this girl from this life of slavery. So she is is liberated through the name of Jesus that she had been using in an improper way. Her key issue was not mental, it was not emotional, it was spiritual. And the name of Jesus Christ broke the spiritual powers and he broke those who profited by her. Okay, then you kind of sit back and say, whoa, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Read this to you earlier. Paul has, in this case, demonstrated the authority of the message of Jesus Christ over the evil spirit, has won for this girl through the name of Jesus and instantaneous, and at one moment, complete change of her life. The verse that came to my mind when I, when I thought about this was Matthew 16, 18, a verse that we looked at a few weeks ago. Here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Will they come against her? I think the answer in this case, in this immediate context is they are coming against her, seeking an alliance that would ultimately weaken the name and ministry of Christ in Philippi. Paul senses that, exercises authority in the name of Jesus and this girl is instantaneously delivered. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against what God is doing. Our response in this story, and I think the the thought is this. God's work advances through his power. His power that converts a woman named Lydia who is seeking to know a savior. His power works in the life of a girl who is enslaved, who is captive, and who works as a servant for others. Our response to this text I think should be this. Trust 
in God's power. Because God is the one in the Old Testament who says this to us. He says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, this is true. The work of the church advances in the power of Christ. Therefore, my weaknesses, my lack of ability, my lack of capacities do not hinder what God is seeking to do through my or your life. Paul couldn't handle this situation in his flesh. He calls on the name of Christ and a massive, glorious deliverance that shakes their immediate world takes place. This morning, you are not facing a struggle or a battle or a weakness that God, through the name of Jesus, cannot overcome. Okay, there is no battle or struggle that you are facing this morning that God is unable to overcome. Because He works through and in the power and in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul knew that. And when he spoke to this girl in this setting, he was trusting in the power of God to work an amazing thing. And verse, verse 18 at the end says, at that moment, the Spirit left her. So we find a woman named Lydia, a businesswoman, who was converted by the gospel. We find a slave girl who was delivered from her slavery by the name of Jesus Christ. And then we move on to verses 22 through 33, which leads us into the next part of this story. The owners of the slave girl in verse 19 become very antagonized and angry about this liberation that she's experiencing. Why? Because they were purely driven by one thing, the profit that they got from the work of the girl. It's all that motivated them. Her being set free from this demonic spirit was no cause for joy for them. Why? Because they were benefiting or profiting from her demonic possession. The result is that they raise up opposition against Paul. Verse 20, they bring them, Paul and Silas, before the magistrates. They accuse them of things that they were not doing, saying they're throwing the city into an uproar, encouraging to practice things that are contrary to the law, which was bona fide and on the face completely untrue. The magistrates are the Roman representatives, so what they want to do is preserve peace in their proud little city outpost of Rome. So what do they do? They have Paul and Silas beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Why? Simply to satisfy the opposition that was rising against the gospel of Christ. Now, the fourth thought that I want us to consider this morning is this. God's work advances through circumstances that we would likely never choose. Okay, in this story, you're going to find that the work of Christ is advancing through circumstances that we would most likely never choose. Paul and Silas did not choose to be thrown into prison. I am sure that they did not think their being in prison was a good thing. But it is fascinating to watch their response to this negative turn of events. Notice what the text says. The jailer takes them, and he's the next target of God's grace, and you just have to love this. He, he receives them, he puts them in the inner cell, fastens their feet in stocks, and he goes home and goes to sleep. You say, Tim, how do you know he goes to sleep? Because in verse 22, it says the jailer woke up when another event occurs. So he goes home, what is he? He's a hardened, seasoned Roman soldier who in his retirement has given the responsibility to take care of a jail using his skills to watch over it very well. That's his job. 
He's incidental in the story, but he is primary in the plan of God. And this is how God works. He allows his people to go through a season of struggle and difficulty. Paul will say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 2 that in Philippi, he and Silas were treated shamefully. In verse 37 of Acts 16, he talks about them being thrown into prison and beaten with rods without a trial. No due process, assumption of guilt, and then thrown into prison. Okay, they bring that up later. But it's an aside in the story. The main text of the story is this. Paul and Silas end up in circumstances that they would have never chosen. And here's, here's how I kind of see this part of the story. Our tendency is to do this. When we end up in circumstances like Paul and Silas in prison, what do we tend to do? We tend to complain, and we tend to ask for release in the immediate or near future. Okay, or we do something like this. In this story, why are they in Macedonia? They're in Macedonia, and particularly in the city of Philippi, because God, through a vision, led them there. I imagine something like this. Silas, if his heart is not walking with the Lord, looking at Paul and saying, are you sure you got that vision right? I mean, that thing about the man from Macedonia saying, come over here, are you sure you got that right, that you understood it clearly? Why? Because we see negative circumstances as indications that we're outside of the will of God. That's how we tend to look at them. We don't embrace them and say, God, work through this. We tend to reject them or question them instead of trusting God. What do Paul and Silas do? Well, the first thing verse 25 tells us is that they, sitting on a rail, feet locked in stocks, backs bleeding with welts, which we find out a little bit later. What do they do? As they come to their senses... They begin to sing at midnight, praying and praising God. Interesting thought. The word for praying in this verse is not the word for asking. The word for praying here is the word for praising. Not, God, get us out of here. Why did you bring us here? No. What are they doing? They're reflecting back on the salvation of Lydia. They're reflecting back on the deliverance of this slave girl. And yes, they're stepping into the cultural fray of demonic possession in the name of Jesus and bringing deliverance to this girl. Didn't go over well with the culture. But they do not sit in prison destitute and sad and sorry that they spoke up for Christ. No. Instead, they are praising God. Because for them, praise was not circumstantial. Praise was something that God was always deserving of. It's why Paul in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4 can say this. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You know what that is? That's the heart of a man who is trusting in God in spite of adverse circumstances. And it is the norm in his life. Why? Because the letter to the believers in Philippi is also a letter that comes from prison. As Paul's imprisoned for the cause of the gospel of Christ. As they're praising God, what happens? Verse 26. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And all, all the doors of the prison flew open. Everyone's chains came loose. Then the jailer woke up as he felt the earthquake. He saw that the prison doors were open. And what is he going to do? He's going to impale himself on a sword and take his life. Because he knows that will be the punishment for the loss of these lives. Now, 
If you were Paul and Silas, I'm going to ask you this question. Answer honestly. If you were Paul and Silas, what would you do in this situation? Right? Unlawfully imprisoned. No due process. You don't even deserve to be there. What would you do? I thought of this as we were singing. I thought, you know, Paul and Silas did for the jailer exactly what Jesus Christ did for me. They could have fled the prison and gotten out of Dodge and preserved their own hide. They could have done that. But what did they do? They stay in prison so that the good news of Jesus can go to this man. His life is preserved by their presence in the midst of their struggle. The struggle that most of us would complain about. The struggle that most of us would seek to run from. And God shakes the world of this third individual in Philippi, another part, I believe, of the church there, and changes his life completely. What does God do? God opened the door and shattered the hardened heart of this jailer. A seasoned warrior, a seasoned soldier of Rome, whose heart is now changed. I mean, minutes before this, what's happening? He took men, bloodied and beaten, locked them in stocks, and went home and went to sleep. That's hard. But the earthquake comes and shakes his world, threatens his own life, his own financial stability, the stability of his family. God opens the door. And the jailer's response is that he rushes into them and says, men, what do I need to do to be saved? The Bible tells us, you know the rest of the story, Paul and Silas proclaim them the good news of Christ. They don't complain about their circumstances, folks. He tells them the good news of Jesus. They don't plead their cause, find a way to get out of here. No. They take advantage of the God-given circumstance and opportunity that is the source of pain in their life, but the path to salvation and the establishment and advancement of the cause of Christ. How are you responding to the trials that God has allowed to come into your life. I mean, the end result here, if you get down to the end of verse 34, is that this Philippian jailer finds himself a man who is filled with joy, who is baptized along with his family as followers and believers of Jesus Christ. On this night, negative circumstances have led to the conversion of this man and his family. And to a probably sense of joy that he has never experienced before in his life. God advances His work through circumstances that we would not choose. Our response should be this. Embrace every trial as an opportunity and then watch what God can do. Watch what God can do. Johnny and Joe, I've been watching you guys. Okay? I think they're, they're, they're on their way to the hospital, but I've been watching Joe and Johnny. You know why? Because when I went to the hospital the other night to visit them in this very difficult circumstance, physically and financially, you know what they were doing? They were praising God. Johnny was laying there thinking her gallbladder was about to be taken out. That's what the doctors were talking to her about when my wife and I got there. And you know what she was doing? Just giving thanks to God, just rehearsing how God's been working through all of her circumstances for His glory. May her tribe increase. 
may we be people that embrace difficult circumstances and say, God, in this situation in my life, you have given me the ear of people that I would never have otherwise. Use me, allow me, cause me to speak your truth to them and join with God. And as you do that, you will begin to have the privilege of seeing God open people's hearts with the gospel. Don't buy into the bitterness of our culture. Don't buy into the complaining about politics and finances and all those things that are so prevalent in our culture. Be a beacon of truth. Be the light of the world. Be the salt of the earth. Let them in your circumstances see and hear about Jesus. Because what's happening in Acts chapter 16 is this. God is building his church. He saves a businesswoman. He rescues a slave girl. He softens and saves the heart of a rugged individual man. In the case of Lydia, she was a seeker. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Tim, I have been seeking to know the truth. Perhaps today, God, through our worship and through the word, has opened your heart to the good news of Christ, who stood on a cross and bore the consequence of your sin so that you could experience forgiveness and eternal life. Perhaps he's worked in your life and attracted you to this place through a friend who has been willing to share with you the good news of Christ. God wants to save you from your sin and change your life forever. Folks, I love this story. Lydia is seeking. You know what God does? God sent a messenger who was willing to speak in a small situation the words of life. There's a man named the Philippian jailer with a hard heart and God sends into his life through the deliverance of a slave girl. Two men who will speak the words of life. And that night, he and his family are baptized and attached to the body of Christ by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Are you a seeker today? Are you Lydia today? Are you the jailer today? Are you struggling with something that you can't overcome today like this slave girl was? Trust in him. And friend, Christian friend, the limitations that you can identify in your life Do not limit your usefulness to God. And I know for many of us, we look at various relational circumstances, financial circumstances, physical circumstances in our lives, and we think that they limit our usefulness to God. I think here's the bottom line. The only thing that limits our usefulness to God is our unwillingness. That's all. The only thing that limits our usefulness is unwillingness. God used a jailer. And God used a seller of purple, a businesswoman, to change Philippi to the point that the Apostle Paul would later write them a letter that just talks in glowing terms about the wonderful things that God is doing in that place. Folks, who does God want you to reach? What circumstance in your life has God sovereignly brought in? What storyline do you have behind your life that God wants to use to change someone's life? How does he want to use you? And I think the bigger question we need to ask as a church family is this. How does God want to use all of us? How does he want to use us? Father, as we conclude our time in your word this morning, 